Today you'll meet Jessica Stewart, a pioneering Slow Flowers floral designer, and you'll learn how she leads with joy when communicating her values to wedding clients. This episode is called Secrets of a Sustainable Wedding Florist. Get ready to be inspired. All of us in the Slow Flowers community in our own ways are trying to figure out how best to make our work more sustainable and more in harmony with our own values. We only use American-grown flowers, and that's a really firm, hard and fast rule. We don't ever use imported material for anything. If there isn't an American-grown option, we have to find a sub. So our communication with our clients is all about selling the idea and the joy around local flowers and American-grown flowers as like the most special thing that they could have versus like a substitution for what they saw on the internet. I find a lot of excitement and joy in my job and getting to show people what local flowers are all about and what my farming partners are growing. Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinsing. This is episode 646. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 750 florist shops and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's a conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to Longfield Gardens, which provides home gardeners with high-quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Check out the full catalog at Longfield Gardens. That's longfield-gardens.com. Well, it's engagement season, and many of our wedding and event designers are busy at this time of year consulting with prospective couples and pulling together concepts and proposals. For slow flowers designers, those who infuse their business values with sourcing and sustainable considerations, there's an added layer involved, an important one. Today's guest, Jessica Stewart, is well aware of the importance of educating clients about having a local and seasonal approach to designing their wedding. We asked Jessica to unpack all the elements involved in running Bramble and Blossom, her Pittsburgh-based studio, and to share her approach to communication during the sales process. Jessica recently gave an incredibly detailed presentation for the January Slow Flowers member virtual meetup, and we recorded it to share as today's podcast episode. You'll be treated to Jessica's approach as she discusses designing for seasonality, and sourcing from local flower farms to produce gorgeous, romantic, evocative weddings. Her presentation includes details on how she prepares contracts and proposals, how she sources and plans for weddings and installations, and her expertise is priceless. You'll want to listen in. Here's a little bit more about Jessica Stewart of Brambles and Blossom, an eco-friendly Pittsburgh wedding florist. Her tagline for her studio includes these guiding principles, ethical, sustainable, anti-racist, inclusive, accessible, intentional, stunning. You'll notice these characteristics in each Bramble and Blossom design and in turn realize how special and rare these qualities are. As Jessica writes on her website, this seems like a humble brag at first, but the truth is we wish there was more competition. She continues, there's a brief moment when each bloom has its peak. As a florist, that moment is what I love most about working with flowers. As a wedding florist, aligning that day with your wedding day is what I live for. That intentionality is the ethos of Bramble and Blossom. Our signature style centers on timing things just so. We select every shape, color, and texture in your arrangements to reflect the landscape and hues of the place where you're getting married and the love story that you've shared with us. We exclusively source seasonal American-grown flowers so that Mother Nature can wish you a happy anniversary each year as those varieties blossom. 
She continues, everything should feel connected because everything is. Your personalities, your love story, your flowers, your wedding day. They were all meant to be. Just like finding a wedding florist you connect with on a deeper, value-centered level was meant to be. Before we jump right into Jessica's presentation, I want to pause and mention how much I appreciate this gifted woman and her support as a Slow Flowers member. As you'll hear in our opening conversation, I first met Jessica and her former partner, Justine Lacey, when they owned Foxglove Floral Design Studio in Brooklyn. The women appeared on episode 136 of the Slow Flowers podcast in April of 2014, during our very first year of this podcast. It's so encouraging to me to continue that conversation now and to realize that one decade later, Jessica remains committed to her sustainable values. So let's welcome her back to the Slow Flowers podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, hello everyone. I'm Deborah Prinzing of Slow Flower Society and I'm so thrilled to welcome you to our January meetup, our first of the year, and it's a great way to kick off the new year. Um, I hope everyone had a great holiday season. So before we get started with Jessica Stewart, who I'll introduce you to in a minute, uh, I just want to say that um, this the idea for this session, Secrets of a Sustainable Wedding Florist, date back to I want to say 2014 when Jessica and I first met. Jessica, I am going to ask you to unmute so you can we can just chat a little bit about this. How are you? It's so good to see you. You too, Deborah. I'm doing good. I'm just enduring January like everybody else. It's well, it's really, really cold in Pittsburgh. Yeah, you're in Pittsburgh, but you were in Brooklyn when we met. Um, I want to say yep. I came to New York in 2014, Slow Flowers had really just started and you had a different business. Was it called Foxglove? Yes. So we had a little meetup. I remember that. And um, uh, Molly uh, Oliver of uh, Molly Culver of Molly Oliver Flowers were there, was there and you were there and your business partner at the time. And we had kind of a after hours meeting and you were just such a pioneer of wanting to have local flowers uh for your for your couples and you know what was it like back then Jessica was it kind of like the desert or um were you you know you're you're still having to educate people but it must have been a, a bit of a challenge almost 10 years ago yeah I mean the very first thing that happened in in my you know becoming a slow flowers designer was asking questions and in the New York City flower market Everything on earth is available. Everything that comes from anywhere comes into New York City. And that was my, you know, playground, training space. I mean, it's a really special place for those who know the 28th Street Market. Um, but I started to ask where things came from and how they were grown uh, because I had been working in some slow foods activities in New York. And I was asking just the same questions that were coming through you know, but directing them to the flowers. And the answers that I got made me feel icky. You were just uh, unreasonable or just like a little bit Yeah, I mean, obsessive. in the beginning, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I remember once uh, a particular wholesaler who, uh, Justine and I, my business partner from Foxglove, who we had worked with for a while, we said, are these American grown? And he said, yeah, South America. Uh, you know, I sat in on a, a really, Really cool meetup, uh, maybe three years ago now here in Pittsburgh of you know a bunch of like-minded folks and some Slow Flowers members, local growers, and you know the talk of a, a collective and a co-op was was on the table. And someone asked me um, as we were leaving, "What do you do um, if the flowers that come are are imported? You know, mm -hmm. you order American-grown flowers and someone subs without asking, or or they pass off or whatever." Um, and I said, I just don't use them. I have to find, I have to find a sub because it's, it's the sort of the cornerstone of my business and my commitment to my, you know, clients is that I say we do not import a stem. So if I say that I have to live and die by that. And she was like, well, what do you do? I was like, I just find an alternative. You have to, I, I just have to. Well, the thing is, Jessica, the reason you're able to do that is because you've, you've developed 
such an amazing source of flowers. And you are in Pittsburgh now. Um, when I asked you if you would come do a presentation, you you went all in and you created a beautiful PowerPoint that you're going to share and kind of walk people through your philosophy. And I'm going to just turn this over to you. I would encourage people to put your questions in um, the chat. Tonally and I will monitor those and we'll kind of collect them for Jessica at the end so she doesn't lose her flow. But um, I think you're going to really um, have some wonderful takeaways from this. So Jessica, we'll go ahead and get the screen up. Yeah, I would just say like, I hope none of it is really that big of a secret because really, I think all of us in the Slow Flowers community in our own ways are trying to figure out how best to make our work more sustainable and more in harmony with our own values. Um, and and it really is just like an endless process. I think just like the more we learn about sustainability and the more that we learn about the work that's still to be done, you know, the more that we realize what the things that we can do in our own businesses to sort of meet the challenge. Absolutely. On the next slide, I really was just going into what Deborah and I have already talked about, which is how I got into Slow Flowers. Uh, like I was saying before, I started in New York City in 2011 doing flowers. And at the time I was helping to manage a CSA. I was interested in slow food and the flower shop where I worked, which was a really cool place called Sycamore in Brooklyn. Um, they were owned by a group that also owned a slow food restaurant that was down the street. So a lot of the questions that were sort of buzzing around that business about locality and like nearness and farm connections, all of those things um, were sort of passing through the flower shop. But at the time, most of the flowers that we were working with were imported. So the questions started to come up like, well, why are these things not in harmony um, why are we talking about all of the, you know, closeness, closeness and connection with farmers in the food side of things, but not with this flower shop that's running out of the front of the business? So as those questions started to arise, I got my first taste of resistance at the New York City farmers or the, farm, the flower market on 28th Street um, when we started asking, you know, okay, here's what we'd like for this wedding. Here's what we'd like for our weeklies, for these events we're doing. Um, one thing, could these all be locally grown? And sort of immediately people were like, no, that's not a thing. Um, okay, could they all be U.S. grown? Well, there are some opportunities for that. There are some things on this list that we could pull, but that's not a request that you can make. And it's my understanding now that that's so much easier like to go into your wholesaler and say, um, as I do, uh, you know, this is what our, where our wish list is for this event. This is what we'd like to work with asterisk, exclamation point, we would like all of that to be American grown. Um, now it's a much easier conversation. And the wholesaler that I've been working with um, for the last uh, six or seven years is Floor Abundance. And my sales rep, he'll say like, if I send him something and I've ordered through the website, he'll text me kind of immediately like, Jessica, we don't have that American grown. What do you want to do? I love now having sort of the opposite experience where somebody immediately reaches out um, and wants to help, you know, set that right versus when I first started doing it, I looked like I was taking crazy pills. <laughs> um, as far as, you know, rules and commitments, I felt like leading with this to just say that my studio, um, Bramble and Blossom here in Pittsburgh, we only use American grown flowers and that's a really firm, hard and fast rule. We don't ever use imported material for anything. Um, if there isn't an American grown option, we have to find a sub. So our communication with our clients is all about selling the idea and the joy around local flowers and American grown flowers, rather than selling the idea of like the exact Pinteresty thing that they are showing me from the internet. Um, and that's taken just such a long time to work out the process of how to share the joy versus making it sound like they're getting something else or getting something instead. And, you know, the wedding industry in America is really good at making people feel that FOMO, making people feel like they need to spend a ton and they need to have this really overblown, you know, extravaganza and that it has to have um, tons and tons of baby's breath. The internet is really good at like selling a certain idea of what weddings are. And 
I find a lot of excitement and just joy in my job and getting to show people what local flowers are all about and what my farming partners are growing um, as like the most special thing that they could have versus like a substitution for what they saw on the internet. Um, Hmm. So yeah. It's it's so interesting. It's like, you're just, the way you frame it is really um, engineering their attitude and their response to your designs. And I think all florists do this, right? Like everyone, whether you're just starting out using locally grown flowers and you have only, you know, a few bunches coming into your workspace every year, or if you're like me and that's, you know, your exclusive workload, um, it really is a process of just learning how to communicate that to clients and to get their excitement about it really um, at the level, hopefully of your own, because otherwise it, it isn't a good fit. And we all know like, how it feels to work with wedding clients who are not a good fit. Um, or at least I expect everybody does. It's not mm-hmm. fun. Um, all right. So next slide um, is just sort of my hot take on, on where I start with the communication. And Deborah, if you want to just tab through to slide eight, I just want to show this as a sort of a little bit of a device, but yeah, <laughs> what I'm talking about with client communication. Yeah, they may say or show you an image from the internet that they saw, and they may say that they want orange seasonal flowers, um, or they may just say, we want orange flowers, or our wedding color is orange. Um, I'm using that because it's like the least popular wedding color right now, and I really feel like the world is wrong about that, and it (laughs) needs to shift. So when they're showing me images that they've seen, the very first line of defense I have against um, having to over-explain, over-communicate is to show them what I already know to be true about seasonal flowers that let's say are orange um, in this case. And that means it's my job as the lead communicator in our relationship and the person who has the most knowledge about the flowers to first show them like, and here we go with like building the excitement, building the joy to show them what is possible and what is seasonal for their date that's in that, you know, orange flower zone that they're excited about because all of their bridesmaids are wearing orange, their wedding dress is orange, the cake is orange. This is like their dream. Um, to start out with that, the very first thing I do when I'm building a style board to share with clients is to weed out anything that's unseasonal in the images that I share. This can be a real pain in the ass because Pinterest loves to show us things that are um, sometimes like real flowers paired with faux flowers, sometimes flowers that are unseasonal paired with locally grown flowers. You know, everyone's doing things differently. So it is our first task and our first line of defense when we're communicating visually with the client to show them our best effort at like what really is going to be on the table. Um, When I have consultations with clients, I lead with a small Pinterest style board. That way we can share visual language and we understand what one another means by orange. Also, it's so unrealistic to expect that everyone you'll meet will be an expert in florals. Um, And it's not their job, it's our job. So I love being able to start by showing them this big realm of possibility versus start by whittling down what they've asked for. Um, As a designer, I feel like it's really important to remember that I'm in the driver's seat for the design. Um, If people are coming to me because they've already chosen their wedding flowers based on something they saw on the internet, I'm not the right designer for them. And especially if they're interested in sustainability and they're interested in locally grown flowers, that approach just most of the time will not work. So it's my job to stay in the driver's seat and lead. Um, yeah, as far as clarity and context, again, like showing images that have this and clearly communicating during the sales process, what the things are that will be on the menu, you can help get them excited about this by, you know, one thing that we do, I share, um, a few like Instagram handles of the farmers who we have direct partnerships with, 
with during our sales process. So I'll tell the client like, okay, well, your homework is to go and look up your wedding date on Bryn Hill's Instagram or on Soul Patch Garden's Instagram. Look up your wedding date from last year. And it's like a fun scavenger hunt, sending them into the realm of our farming partners. They may see things that they never even new existed. They may get really excited. They may have kind of like a, a not a response to it. And they're like, okay, I looked, I saw it. But all of this is like a step that you could take towards building the excitement about that connection to local flowers. Um, our clients usually get really excited. I'll say the ones who are great fit get very excited about this. Um, and in terms of like overcoming common misconceptions, this is something that Deborah and I talked about uh, before when we were talking about having this chat. And I think, you know, in this global floral world where everything's available all the time, 24 seven, and our clients are used to shopping on Amazon. They're used to ordering food through DoorDash. They're used to everything being a click of a button. It's our job as a slow flowers designer to like keyword, slow it down (laughs) to like help slow things down and talk about, what the growing season is like, what the local flowers that'll be available for their date are like, and, and not in any way, like reinforce that idea of like, everything will be available really quickly at the click of a button for you. Um, Really selling that as a perk and not as a flaw is something that I've learned to do over the years. And it really just takes this communication about what will happen at each stage of the sales process and how they'll know what the flowers that will be available on their wedding day, what we'll be planning to use is like paramount so that they don't get nervous that they won't know what they are. Um, and, And one of the ways that I do that really simply is by having in our contracts rather than, um, for each item that we're designing, say like a bridal bouquet, we don't list like your bridal bouquet will have white peonies, white ranunculus, and, you know, uh, spirea. What our contracts say is your bridal bouquet will have a mixture of larger focal flowers with textural elements, giving the, you know, woodland fairy vibe, whatever their vibe is that, um, that we're painting across this whole event. The flowers that we would like to use are, and if there's something that came up in the conversation, like the bride said she loves these peonies or she saw a photo of Spirea that we shared and she loved it, we'll include that as like, we would like to use these. And at the top of our contract, we have a whole section that's just um, the flowers that will be included, but it's not itemized. It's not saying like, these will absolutely be in your bridal bouquet specifically. I don't know, actually if there's a good way for me to show that to you, but I can email Deborah a screenshot that we can include with the follow-up notes, just so I can show you what that looks like. Um, But the very last line of it is really important. And so we have this list of the seasonal availability, um, say for this orange loving bride in, you know, late July, uh, which is weirdly, (laughs) sorry, it's weird that this is the slideshow because this is the sales call I had last night was for a late July wedding that wanted lots of um, like sunset colors, like oranges and yellows and and burgundies. Um, But what I'll say in that is, you know, these are the, you know, 17 or 18 different varieties that we are putting on your, what I call approved flowers list. And the very last line of it says, and other flowers in your color palette as available from our local farming partners. That really, that one line gives me carte blanche to make substitutions as necessary during the design process and during the buying process. So I really think over the years, I've had so many clients ask us like, and and what what would be the additional things on there? Like my mom looked at this and everything looked great, but what is this and other flowers as available? And I always tell them like, honestly, like that's kind of where the magic comes in. That's when you say that you want a purple wedding and one of our growers has just trialed a new variety of long stem pansy. We've never had this in the shop before. We had some of them from them last year. They were yellow, so they weren't for your color palette. We didn't know they'd have the purple, but Yahtzee, it's the week of your wedding. And one of our farming partners comes to us and says, oh, we have something that'll work. Here's these long stem purple pansies. 
you know, that's the like secret sauce of local flowers and being able to get folks excited about that. Again, it's not like a, and I will be sneaky and throw in whatever I feel like. It's like, no, this is the magic. This is where there may be something that we didn't even know would be in bloom because you're right on the edge of the season and it was available and it was beautiful. So that gives us this ability to still stick to our contract and still honor um, you know, what we've committed to with the client, but to be able to bring something that's really special and that's really of the moment. For this, I really, I included this just as like a kind of catch-all. And I think these are all the places, and there may be more, there may be more that you do in your business already. And I'd be super curious to hear. Um, but these are the spaces where we communicate communicate and then over communicate about seasonal availability. And that can take the form of, you know, sometimes when we're posting on Instagram, I go through periods where I tag every single flower. And that way, when I come back through, especially because clients will send us like in a DM, like, oh, I saw this bouquet. I loved this. It makes my work easier on the back end when I have a list of everything that was in something that's gone on the socials. And can quickly respond like in a DM to that client, like, oh yeah, and here's, you know, this cottage yarrow. That's the variety that's in there that you got excited about. That's what that pastel is. Um, tagging things uh, to the hilt is really helpful. And then just sort of like starting out the relationship with the clients, we have an introductory email sequence that goes out. So when people first email us, um, our magical HoneyBook robot. I don't know if you, anybody else is using HoneyBook, but one of our automations will send out a series of messages depending on what kind of event they're inquiring about. And we begin with the very first thing, um, just sort of hammering home the idea of slow flowers and what that means to our studio. You know, what we do first is talk about our values rather than first, oh my God, we're so excited about your wedding. And oh my God, we can't believe that you emailed us. Like, I think when I was first starting out as a florist, that was my instinct was just like, oh my gosh, somebody wants to hire me. Like this could really happen. Um, and now going into wedding season 14, I feel like one of the things that I'm the proudest of is that in my business, I am able to lead with values and I am able to begin conversations there rather than from this like kind of capitalist perch of like, oh good, a dollar's floating by. I'll, I'll jump really quickly. Um, leading with your values almost always, in my case, has meant connecting with clients who share them or share them and and don't really know how to incorporate that into their wedding. You know, you'll find a lot of people who are excited about that Slow Flowers logo on your website or posting about, you know, locally grown flowers on Instagram. Those are the folks who shop at the farmer's market on the weekend. There's somebody who belongs to a CSA or a food co-op. There's somebody who maybe like has a recycling bin and after they have a party at their house, they're the person who's digging through the trash, making sure that all the wine bottles got into the recycling. That's my ideal client. And so I want to reach out directly as if I'm speaking to someone of whom I already know that to be true. So in all of the places where you see Bramble and Blossom, that's the person that I'm thinking about. And so I try to like imagine them picking up their CSA share, you know, the night of our, our consultation call. I really like want to put them in that place. Um, all right. So yeah, I would say now I realize I wrote tricks. I don't know that these are tricks. These are methods. These are the things that I do again, in terms of this communication. Um, the first one, which is really important and has been such a time saver, if you are not already doing this, it's one of the things that I think would be quite easy for most of the members today to take away. And that's to have a document. Ours is an Excel spreadsheet. Well, it's a Google Drive spreadsheet. But to have a, a document where you clearly list all of the seasonal blooms by month that you are getting from your partner farms or from your local growers or from your own garden. So. If you are a farmer florist, I'm sure that you're already tracking this information and have loads of spreadsheets coming out of your ears. Organizing these by color, organizing them week to week or even month by month can really save you a lot of time whenever you're writing contracts or going into a sales call. So for instance, the folks that I talked to last night are getting married at the end of July. I just pulled up the spreadsheet, clicked through to July, and I have right there 
everything that we bought in the last four years in July, um, organized first by what we got from local growers and then by what we got from the West Coast. Um, and then there's like a small section at the end if we got Texas Smilax or maybe like some random strange foliage from Florida, but most of it's coming from either our local farming partners or the West Coast. So we have it all organized by where it came from and by the week of the month that it was in. So it's pretty easy to go back in the little time machine and ask myself like, okay, well, what did my farmers have this time last year? And I guess the flip side of that too is when we're communicating with farmers over the winter before the season begins, I do send out a, a big message to all of our growing partners that I'll have like week by week our events and their color palettes. And we'll even include a link to the Pinterest board that we shared with the client. So if there's anything in particular that we're really hopeful to have, like um, this is usually something we don't include is like a Cornell bronze dahlia because so many people grow them. But like if we in particular had a wedding that we wanted that for in late September, then we would put that on under that week and that color palette. We have like a little wish list. We share those very early so that folks can let us know if there's like no way in heck or if we've wished for something that's ridiculous. After doing this for a number of years, I don't usually get an email like that. Mostly I get, oh, great. And we're planning to start like three extra rows of, you know, X, Y, or Z that I think will be really great for those two events you have in October. So people will reach out and there's early communication with our farming friends about what we'll be looking for. Um, that information and why we would even ask for it comes from collecting that um, flowers by month document too. So it's really easy to know what should be available or what is realistic to be available. If you don't have something like this already, if you're just starting out, um, I was just recently sent an email from a collective um, that we buy flowers from where they cataloged what they had month by month and like what they had done last season. So you might reach out to collectives in your area or um, wholesalers that offer American Grown to ask if they have a document like this that you could see. Like, what are the things that I could expect? What are the things that I can include in my sales process so that I know ideally that these things will be available? Um, it's not really rocket science. And I think people think it's a little bit scarier than it is to like jump ship of including um, imported flowers. I even will say like there are farmers who I know who do weddings, um, who, who, who grow their own flowers, but who are also using imported flowers because they feel like they just want to be able to, you know, get those clients that have to have, you know, like a toffee rose. There are definitely American grown roses that suit the color palette, but if you have to have a toffee rose and you promised your client that it will be a toffee rose, then the only place that you're getting that from is Ecuador. So you've committed to that and that's what you've signed on for with the client. So it's always strange to see the the mismatch of those things. But I think with a little pre-planning and reaching out to the folks who will be bringing the flowers into your studio, um, your wholesalers or, or farmers that you're working with or yourself, if you're the grower, um, it, just a little planning in advance can really put you again in the driver's seat and telling the clients what will be available. Um, this slide actually may be the shortest one in the whole batch. And this is just a detail of where Bramble and Blossom sources from. Um, this is what works for us. And these are in order of preference. These are in order of who we reach out to first. So first for us is direct farming partnerships. In Pittsburgh, we're incredibly lucky, depending on where you are in the world, reaching out directly to the local network of farms. I mean, that's the first thing that I did when I moved from New York City to Pittsburgh. Even as I was trying to figure out the name of this, this business that would become Bramble and Blossom, the first thing that I did was start making a list of all the local farms that I could get in touch with. It's really, it's always a wild ride <laughs> trying to reach out to folks, especially folks who aren't used to selling to florists. Um, in our neck of the woods, there are a lot of flower farmers who five years ago were really only concerned with farmers markets and maybe like a small subscription service, like where they were having a weekly bouquet drop off or pickup. Um, now, I feel like since I've lived in Pittsburgh, we've had the advent of a collective that's been born and just finished its second year. So that's really exciting. 
um, the Greater Pittsburgh Cut Flower Collective, which is changing its name right now. And as soon as I said that out loud, I cannot remember what their new name is. Um, but it's a group of, of local growers that's really cool. Um, the Ohio Cut Flower Collective is actually not that far from Pittsburgh either. It's within our 100-mile bouquet. So that's another collective that we're in cahoots with. And Connie, who runs it, is so amazing. But yeah, there are collectives in your area. There are farmers in your area. The Slow Flowers Network has such great tools for you to find and reach out to these folks. But also sort of often I've found like one farmer begets another. So if you meet someone who is really excited about partnering with florists, they might say like, oh, and my neighbor down the road or this other person and I often drop off together or we often like pool our resources when we're, you know, doing seed starts or whatever. I think there's such a wonderful network of farmers all across America who are already connected to one another. You may find when you reach out for that first time that you sort of like open the door to a whole community that you didn't really know was there in right in your area. And it was a fun thing too, when I first moved to Pittsburgh, like getting to know all of the folks who were growing flowers in my region. It was a really fun, like sort of endless field trip of going around to everybody and introducing myself and, and finding out what folks were growing. I think that was one of the most fun times in my life since I have moved here. So that also is in my, my category of things with lots of joy. Um, yeah. So the farmers, the collectives, um, I put foraging on here because that's something that a lot of folks are talking about lately. And we for sure do. Um, obviously there are good guidelines for that and being a, a good neighbor and a good land steward is really important. So a, for instance, is the first wedding that we've done this year um, was last weekend. And I was doing a large mantle installation that needed evergreens. I happen to have a bunch really close to my house that is on the property that my landlord owns. So I knew that it was an okay spot to take some evergreen. And it was just for this one, you know, installation arrangement. So sourcing things myself by hand, um, you know, we've done, we've done a lot of roadside foraging too in our neighborhood. Um, but always making sure that you have permission and are able to be in the space that you're in, that you're not taking something that's not yours to take. Um, and then the last thing is just the wholesale market. You know, for a lot of florists in the United States, this is the only option. They may live in an area where there really aren't local flowers. There really aren't farmers that are right down the street or that they can connect with easily. And that could be because of transportation, so many, so many things. Um, so knowing who is a potential partner for deliveries for wholesale, um, and there are some really great ones. I Like I mentioned, I use Florabundance, but... I also, you know, order directly um, from some rose growers and there's some other uh, like GNS greens or SNS greens. There's some other folks who will ship um, through the U.S. and knowing who those partners are is really helpful too, especially if you're in a pinch or you're out of season, like our January wedding we just did. And this is also like really simply just a note on our methods and sourcing, you know, part of us having that approved flowers list in the contracts where we're saying like, these are the things that ideally we're going to bring to your wedding. And also maybe some really exciting things that we won't know until the week of. Um, being able to have the permission of my clients in advance to make a game day decision, to make that week of decision, you know, to reach out to your farm and say, okay, so we need like 65 Cornell dahlias for this, you know, event that we're working on. And they may say like, you know, the weather's been wacky, things are just not opening up, or the weather's been wacky, everything's blown out, you know, everything's everything's toast. Um, here are some alternatives. Being able to have that permission in advance to make those decisions, like to me now, that's my right as a designer. And that's why they've hired me is because I do know the difference between a Dahlia that's going to hold and one that won't. Um, you don't want to say like, you will definitely be having a bouquet of Cornell bronze dahlias. And then the week out, they just are terrible. And you have no, you know, way to get out of it because you've already promised this. Or, and I've heard so many florists describe this interaction and it kind of hurts my tummy to have to contact your couple the week of their wedding and say, unfortunately, the only thing that you've been excited about for the last nine months, the only thing that we've pitched to you is not available. Um, I feel like this happens so often with peony weddings because that season is so fickle and like 
it comes on like crazy, but you wait and wait and wait until it's time and and promising somebody in May that they're definitely going to have exactly this one color of peony is is a challenge and and you can kind of box yourself into a corner that kind of sucks. So again, putting yourself in the position to have that permission and trusting your gut that you know best because you're the designer, you're the flower person, and it's okay that your client isn't. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to say about sourcing, um, just also in terms of like, you know, we live in America. We live in a a capitalist society where everything is for sale and everything has a price. I think it's really something that I love about Bramble and Blossom and I love about owning this business is that those relationships are part of why this is my job. Like those connections, you know, that's the part that makes this worth doing to me. Um, The sustainability aspect and being a values-based business you can't say that on the one hand and then treat everything as if it's transactional on the other. So building relationships with the folks who grow your flowers, or if you are the grower, building relationships with folks who design with your flowers, like that's the good stuff. Like that's the stuff that makes this all worth doing in my, in my experience. Um, it's just, I don't know. We just this week in Pittsburgh, um, somebody from our wedding community, uh, passed away from cancer, um, who was very young. And it's been really interesting seeing the outreach in our community as people have talked to one another and and expressed like all these memories and remembrances of this person who, you know, we didn't all work with on a daily basis. We worked with when we did events in that venue. But those relationships, like this is your life, you're living it. So those connections that you have with the designer who you sell to or the farmer who you buy from, that's your real life. Those text messages that you send each other at like six in the morning when you're on your way and you're running late and you use 15 emojis and like coffee cups, you know, that's your real life. And, and the joy and the realness of those relationships is something that I didn't feel when I was only buying flowers from the New York city flower market, where I did not know the hands who grew them. I did not know, you know, the the where's and when's of how they had traveled to me. Um, or how they've been planted and cared for. That's all like really special. And I think there's a way to, to communicate that to your clients and to let them know that that's the kind of grower that you are. That's the kind of designer that you are um, without being like corny or funny. I really like believe that. So take that for what it's worth. Um, I'm going to kind of go quickly through this part because we are at sort of near the end of our chat. And this is something that I think a lot of you already either have experience with or that could be things that are touched on at another time. But really like there are as many styles of slow flowers, wedding designs as there are folks who are getting married. And I just want to kind of bring home the idea that just because you say like you're a slow flowers designer doesn't mean that you are like a wild and whimsical like fairy tale designer. It doesn't mean that you're like a boho chic designer or that you're like a you know vibrant modern designer all of those different designers could all be slow flowers designers it doesn't um, necessarily mean that all your weddings have sunflowers in them which I think is something that people think when I say local flowers they're like oh it's going to be real country looking and have lots of sunflowers not necessarily some of the weddings that we design are incredibly elegant and you know look like they came off the page of Martha Stewart, but they're designed only with American grown flowers. So I think sticking to your gut too, as a designer and like what brings you joy and the things that you enjoy making, you can still do that and um, choose to buy American grown flowers and choose to work with growers that really, you know, share those values. Um, I also had just a whole bunch of studio practices. Um, And this is a little bit of a laundry list. I'm sure that all of you have your own ideas and things too. And I'd love to hear at the end, like in Q&A, just what are the things that other designers and growers are doing? But these are some of the things that we do in the Bramble and Blossom studio. Um, We partner with a local nonprofit that handles all the donations. So like in the sales call I had last night, I told the potential client, At the end of their wedding, there are three choices. They can bring things home. These are their flowers. I would love for them to take as much as they can and enjoy them. Um, We also offer like 
an end of the night bouquet wrap up. So we'll come through if they'd like us to when our team's doing a strike um, and we can gather things up. We put them in EcoFresh wraps and just hand them to guests as they're leaving. Some people really like this and other people are like, just get rid of it. I want to be done when it's over. Uh, the second option is to have things donated. And our local partner here, Sent With Love, they send volunteers to do the donations. We're able to set that up well in advance. And it's not something that our team has to do, but it's an easy end for the flowers to get to kind of ride again and have another day. And then the last thing is composting. Anything that comes out of the Bramble Blossom studio either is reused or composted. And that's another hard and fast rule for us. We're really, really big sticklers on this. Um, I am that crazy person at the end of the night digging through the garbage to like pull rubber bands out so that we can make sure that everything's good to go into our compost. Um, and we've done this in a few different ways. I know in some areas there's municipal um, composting for businesses. There is here in Pittsburgh, there are three different organizations that will pick up compost from florists. Um, or compostable materials from florists. Um, and then there's also home composting for those who have a business that's scaled so that that's appropriate and won't, you know, take over your whole life. Um, and then we've also, um, I've also met some other florists who compost by bringing floral waste back to the flower farms that they work with so that the waste is actually going back to the farm where it came from. So there are a lot of different approaches for this. Um, and you can see on this like massive, just like stick everything on the wall list. You know, we think about packing and transportation, reusing, reducing as much as we can there. Um, I brought one very silly thing that we will use this probably for the rest of my natural life. Um, if anyone's ever received one of these in the mail with bud vases in it, they are also perfect for putting bouquet vases in for delivery. I've had that one for about four years. They never break down. They are basically waterproof and they fit inside a standard bus bin or a Rubbermaid tub really easily. So being creative and thinking about the things that are coming into the studio that would, for most folks, be trash. How can you keep them out of the waste stream for as long as possible? How can you reuse them until they can't be reused anymore if they're not recyclable? Um, and I would say the biggest thing on this list maybe to touch on is just to reevaluate, observe, and then reevaluate. I think as a sustainable florist, the thing that I'm doing the most repetitively is asking myself what worked about that, what didn't work about that, um, and was the idea that this would be more environmentally friendly actually how it turned out? Was this, you know, was this too much of a pain? Is there a better way to do it? You know, just constantly questioning your own methods and being okay to revise them to say like, you know, we really were trying to use agrowool um, two seasons ago. And for the style of design work that I do, it just was messy and fell apart and it didn't hold in the kinds of installations where I wanted to use it. And we already had a sustainable alternative for vase work. So we stopped using it. But I think I felt like really verklempt about it when we were like, I guess we won't buy any more agri-wool. The idea was so good, but you know, if it's not working, if it's not working for your design style, reevaluating and saying like, okay, we've got to, you know, come back at this another way. Um, a really great example of that is like in uh, bouquet armatures or bouquet mechanics, there are so many different things that work depending on what kinds of flowers you're using. Asking yourself, what did this work well for? And keeping a little list like really helps you to save time in the studio and also to know like as you're looking at your upcoming season what are the things that I would like to have more of what did I run out of um, and what will I probably not buy again because it wasn't really a great fit for for our studio or our shop um, or our farm um, yeah there's so many things on this list but let's go to the next slide yeah I mean that the second slide about um, studio practices has a lot of ideas too that I would say if you aren't already doing those kinds of outreach or connection with local makers and trying to shop locally for the things in your space, um, I would really recommend doing that too, because sustainability doesn't just mean sustainability in terms of our like 
direct impact on the environment. It's also our local community and also the sustainability of our own business and whether our practices are serving, you know, the way that we want to interact with clients and other vendors too. Um, oh yeah. Installations. Uh, I guess this is the slide where I saved all of my big things that went wrong. Cause I thought when Deborah asked me to talk about like secrets of a sustainable florist, I was like, Oh, my deep, dark secrets. Like all the things that went terribly wrong. You know, these are just two really silly ones, but in the trial and error section on this slide, like, you know, we got really excited at the advent of the ocean pouch. And I don't know how many um, other folks in the chat today use ocean pouches. I think they are right now like neck and neck with chicken wire as my favorite mechanic for uh, large, large scale installation work. They're just, I mean, they do so many of the things that I like to do as a designer, and then they are compostable. Um, but they also have limits. And we were asked to do a really large scale installation um, covering the front of a bar. Um, Phipps uh, Conservatory and Botanic Gardens here in Pittsburgh, they were opening a new exhibit of plants uh, from Hawaii. And so they asked us, well, you work with American grown flowers. Could you do an installation of flowers from Hawaii that would be like celebrating cut flowers and we'll mix it in with everything that's going on with the plants in this big gala they were having? I was like, absolutely. Not a tropical florist usually. Don't work a lot with stuff from Hawaii, but I'll give it a go. Like it all made sense in my mind. But when we set up this bar, the way that it was angled, I didn't think about the weight in the ocean pouches, the way that other mechanics have a, like a deeper base weight. And as we were setting them up, some of these very, very hefty, um, like, you know, the <laughs> just giant Hawaiian leaves started to tip. And we actually had to go outside and dig gravel out of the parking lot to provide a counterweight so that it all didn't fall over right before everyone attended this big expensive gala. But that's the kind of stuff that it happened one time. And then I knew that we had to use a different base mechanic for those kind of plants if we were using ocean pouches. So like being a little forgiving with yourself about trying new things and incorporating new things into your business. I mean, there is no end to the embarrassment. There is no end to the embarrassment that is possible as a designer when you are in front of someone's family and the wedding's about to start in 10 minutes and you only had 90 minutes to set up. So you're just there doing your thing, sweating in front of everybody, but trying to stay cool and really like being creative about problem solving. It's something that we all have to do. Um, yeah, this is what I mentioned before, like keep a list of what's working, what isn't and the right tool for the job. And that could be something that you never expected to. It could be something that you already have in your studio. Okay. I think there may be, yeah, that's it. <laughs> there may be one more slide, which is simply, you know, thinking about an action plan and thinking about going into 2024 as we're looking at, you know, what worked last year, what are we planning to do this year? And we're looking at the forecast of the events that we've already, you know, contracted and started to prep for and then the new work that's coming in it's really exciting to think about all the ways that we can be innovative and that we can bring new aspects of sustainability into the business that we're not doing right now um, and I would just be really curious and we can start our Q&A Deborah I'd be really curious like what other folks are working on um, in terms of sustainability in their floral designs wonderful thank you so much Ah, I love what you presented, and um, thanks for the truth-telling, too. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who are like, yep, been there, done that. That that, that drama happens for a lot of folks. Um, let's just take about five minutes for questions. Um, if you, Tonali, are there any questions that have popped up in the chat that you want to kick us off with? <clears throat> I think the best takeaway that I heard, I'll just share while Tonali's gathering some questions, is... Uh, the tip to send your client or put, you know onto a little scavenger hunt to look at the Instagram accounts of the farmers you work with. I mean, what a what a wonderful idea! And in the past, so many florists have been hesitant to share those farming sources with their clients, and it doesn't seem like that's an issue for you at all. They're not you're not competing with them for that client, right? 
No, no. And even if I am, um, some of our farming partners also do wedding work. Um, Pisarchik Farm is amazing, and their um, they have um, their wedding business is called Tulpe. Uh, they, I, I, well, I hate the word like competitor, but like I buy flowers from them. But they also might be talking and having a sales call with the same client I'm trying to win. Um, but I would still send people to their Instagram, and we do. And yeah. in fact, when we don't have a wedding date available, my first line of um, the email that gets automatedly sent out, if we're not available for the date, um, lists three of our farming partners who do wedding work. As really? Like, as referrals? Like, yeah, as referrals. Absolutely. It, it would make no sense. It would make no sense to want their business to thrive and to get to have these relationships with farming partners if you're not like really all in. Yeah. To me, it would make no sense. Yeah. Um, can you just also restate <clears throat> this idea of tagging uh, the flowers in a photo? Do you mean like a, like you will list the whole hashtag of every single variety that is in that photo uh, when you post? Yeah, sometimes we do. If you look back, you'll see like eras of Bramble and Blossom's Instagram where we have these really long tags or tags in the first comment where it's like, you know, Lysianthus, Scabiosa, Cornell Dahlia, why I'm like all hung up on Cornell Dahlia's today. Because <laughs> it's orange. <laughs> yeah, they're my favorite. But um, yeah, we often do the tagging in Instagram like that, but also in Pinterest, which we get a lot of traffic um, from mm-hmm. Pinterest also. Great. I think Tonley has a question to ask. Yeah. So this is just something that I struggle with myself sometimes as somebody who focuses on local first is that Sometimes when we get those amazing brides, you mentioned the toffee roses and stuff, they see that as luxury. Do you have any words of advice for those of us who know that our local products are equally as luxurious as that thing that flew here on an airplane? Like, what is your call to action on helping brides understand that local is luxury? Yeah, I mean, we really sell the, like, commitment to community as, like, just, like, in the space where we're living, like celebrating the thing that is the most Pittsburgh, like that's the most true and authentic. Um, I usually skip the word luxury altogether because I know that is what they're thinking. And I know that's like, they're forecasting themselves into their wedding day and wanting to feel like a queen or wanting to feel like a pair of kings. Saying that local flowers are the height of that luxury because they are so specific so precious. I use that word a lot, like of the moment and uh, one of a kind. We talk about that a lot in our sales calls too. You know, if you look at our website, I had a really talented copywriter help me with the wording, um, Taylor from Big Mouth Copy. And if you look at the website, we I think do a good job of explaining how that finite little moment where their wedding flowers are in you know in the prime of their lives that's just for them that's so special it's so unique and it's only for you on your wedding day really honing in on like the specialness the uniqueness and like the treasure um those are all that's all language that i use in our mm-hmm. sales calls too most people it's a really easy and quick they're like oh my god yes i didn't think of it that way and some mm-hmm. people are like i love toffee roses <laughs> Often that person's just not like a great fit for Bramble and Blossom. I will say too, like uh, one thing that comes in that way often is baby's breath, which I mentioned, I think in the very beginning of this chat today, like we don't use it at all, except in the very short period of the year where one of our growers um, has the Covent Garden variety. And so it is locally grown. It's extraordinary. It's like the most special flower. I, I freak out over it every year. But we don't do baby's breath, you know, 11 months out of the year because it's not locally available. Um, That's, and that makes so it even more special. Beautiful and light and airy that do that thing that baby's breath does that are not baby's breath. So, yeah, I think selling the specialness is, is the key. Uh, we have a question from Janet Kramka of, um, from Connecticut. And she says, as a flower farmer, how do you recommend I connect with local wedding florists and what makes you choose one farmer over the other? Yeah, I would say I get emails from farmers saying, hey, 
we saw you on social media or we heard about you from, and then they will name another farm that I work with. Um, when, when do you start buying? When does your season start? That's a question that I get asked a lot. And I think it's so nice when farmers reach out and say, these are some of the things that I'm planning for 2024. I actually just got an email like this a couple of days ago, um, right after New Year's. And I thought, this is so great because they're sending me this little forecast of what their plans are. I also reach out to farmers um, in the reverse. And I think you could ask these questions as well. Like, hey, it's me. I would like us to get to know each other. I would like you to buy from me. Um, what's the best mode of communication for you? How do you, how far in advance do you need to know things? What's your process like? Um, and just like a simple, like, Skype date, cup of coffee in real life to talk about process, I think has been one of the most valuable things in a lot of the farming connections that I have. Um, just so that we're on the same page, some people that I work with only communicate via text, which um, is really stressful for my assistant because I'll say, here's the buying list for this week. And it's literally screenshots from text messages from me talking with the farmer. Um, and some of our farming partners have elaborate spreadsheets that they send every Thursday at 8 p.m. Um, they have a Google Drive sheet that's shared and it repopulates with what will be available in the STEM counts. Some people are so detailed and so um, proactive. And then other people are like, I don't know, ask me on Tuesday night for Wednesday morning. I'll let you know. But <laughs> some of my farmers like who are such incredible growers that's worth it to me. Like if mm. I have to stay up late on Tuesday to know what they're going to have for STEM counts on Wednesday, like I will do that because their product is so good. Mm. Um, yeah. Asking how they like to be communicated with is a, is a big win. And if that's just the beginning of your conversation, you learn so much about one another by just starting with that. Mm. Great suggestion. Thank you. That was so helpful. Jessica, the, the takeaway for me that I just was unexpected that you communicated so beautifully is just the joy. And like, why are you doing this? Why are you going through all these extra <clears throat> processes, scripting all your communication, creating systems? It's um, so that you can have a lot of stress-free experiences making beautiful flowers for people's special day. And I, that really came across to me. And I think that's why we're all in this business. Totally. And and if it isn't, 2024 could like be the year that you find the joy. And I think, I think really like community and connections with people is what it's really all about. Mm. Our brides will have one time, but our partnerships with one another, we could have for decades. So I think mm. that's where I put my heart. Well, thank you so much. This has just been wonderful. And Jessica, you rock. I'm, we're all going to be following you to see what orange weddings you do at the end of July. <laughs> yeah, but I'm excited about it too. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Next meeting, all uh, of you have a wonderful day. I wish you all a wonderful um, season. Uh, if you are ready to work on pitching your brides and writing proposals, I hope you take one lesson from this. And that's what Jessica said to me before we started. She said, I just hope everybody can have one tip to integrate into their own business or just to try one thing in building a more sustainable practice around weddings, whether you're the grower who works with designers or the designer who's looking for those awesome growers. Thanks so much for joining me today. You will want to check out our show notes for episode 646 at slowflowerspodcast.com to watch the replay video of Jessica's presentation, find her informative slide deck, and see photos of her work. I'll also share links to Jessica's social places. Our next sponsor thank you goes to Rooted Farmers. Rooted Farmers works exclusively with local growers to put the highest quality specialty cut flowers in floral customers' hands. When you partner with Rooted Farmers, you are investing in your community and you can expect a commitment to excellence in return. Learn more at rootedfarmers.com. And thank you to Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry with the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds 
supply to farms large and small, and even to backyard cutting gardens like mine. Find the full catalog of flower seeds and bulbs at johnnysseeds.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. The Slow Flowers Podcast is a member-supported endeavor, downloaded more than 1 million times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. If you're new to our weekly show or our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowerssociety.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of The Slow Flowers Show and The Slow Flowers Podcast. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one stem, one vase at a time. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.